Oh. Anyway, so who's hungry for the word today? Who's, yeah. You know, we've been preaching in this message series for, gosh, about six weeks now, and we're, we're kind of finally starting to kind of wrap it up, come to an end. Uh, I think this week and maybe one more week, and we'll be through the end of the book of Revelation. And we've been talking a lot about end times and, and prophecy and approaching it from the perspective, I think, is as, as important as anything here, approach, is the perspective that we approach these teachings with, knowing that God has given us this in his word. He's talked to us. He spoke to us about things that are yet to come. Uh, a lot of these things are difficult to interpret. Uh, there's questions many times, is this figurative or is this literal? Uh, and you may land in one of two places or there may be room for both, you know, in the way that we interpret this. But the idea is, is as we approach these scriptures, we realize that the knowledge of things to come is profitable for our soul. God gave us these books and these writings as part of his inspired word. And every word that proceeds from the mouth of God has his life and has his nature which means it has the capacity to create life. It has the capacity to produce fruit in our lives. So there's value, there's benefit in feasting upon every single word in this book. And the things that talk about end times and prophetic things that are yet to come are equally as profitable for our soul as things that we read about that have already happened. It just affects us differently and it encourages us to live in a way where we're eternally minded, where there's a hope not a fear for what is yet to come. There is a blessed hope of the inheritance, the fullness of the inheritance that yet awaits us that we don't step into. We're increasing in this walk with God in our faith every day, but we step into fullness in this thing when we leave this earth and actually go to be with him in heaven. And the realities of that encourages our soul. It removes any fear of death that we potentially could live with if we didn't know what was beyond this life. And it also causes us, as many times we've read about in the last few weeks, to live prepared, to live ready as if the Lord might return any day, that we don't get caught being slack-minded or slack-handed, just kind of going around apathetic without this intent of mission-minded work where we're doing the Lord's work because he could return at any point. And, uh, and so there's profit and there's value in all this for us. Let me also say this, that all of these prophecies that we read about in the Bible, um, many of them that we are talking about that are yet to come, that Revelation speaks about some of the other books that we've read in the Old Testament, that there are also many prophecies, I forget exactly how many there even are, but many prophecies in the Old Testament that have already been fulfilled that have already com been completed in complete accuracy. So when you look at the hundreds, if not thousands of prophecies that have already been spoken in hundreds of years, if not thousand plus years been fulfilled, then we can draw from that reality that the prophecies yet to come, whether we fully understand how they will happen, will be worked out in perfection by our Lord in the way that he chooses to fulfill that. All these other prophecies that have already happened can lead us to expect and have hope and faith that all of the others yet to come will happen exactly as the Lord chooses and as he said and as he wills. And so um, where we're at now is we've 
kind of concluded this period of time known as the tribulation. There is a period of seven years where there is much uh, havoc on the earth led by the Antichrist himself who's under Satan's power. The seven-year tribulation is, we've been through that, it's come to an end, and we actually taught last week on this period after the seven years are over and Christ returns, that's the day of the Lord, and then that inaugurates this new age or this new era that's called the millennium or a 1,000-year period of time in which the saints rule with Christ on the earth with Jerusalem being the capital city that the reign extends out of. And we spoke all in, in depth about that reign, about the thousand-year period last week. So if you missed that, you should go back and listen to the message on podcasts or on our website. But we're going to pick up today now at the end of the thousand-year period. So you had the church age, which existed from Christ onward, and then from there we had the return of the Lord, and then there's the thousand-year reign, and then as the thousand-year reign ends, there's a transition from that into what we call the eternal age. So now eternity is beginning to set in. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to start by just re uh, revisiting in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, so we can kind of get, a, a, again, a picture of where we're all at. Where is everyone in this story? Where's Satan? Where, is, where, is the, where are the saints? Where are the unbelievers? Kind of just a recap of where everybody is as this time starts to unfold. Verse 4, John writes, he says, I saw thrones... And they that sat on them and judgment was committed to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead, meaning the unbelievers, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So this time now is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who takes part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. And they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. So at this point, we saw a few verses earlier that as the Lord returned, there was the battle of Armageddon and all of the unbelievers that were alive on the earth that were rallied together in this final battle are destroyed and killed uh, as the Lord returns and then they are cast into the pit into Hades in the underworld. So there are now no longer any unbelievers, any rebellious uh, people on the earth after that the Lord has returned. And then it says once that is completed that the angel came down and bound Satan for 1,000 years in the bottomless pit. So while Satan up until this point has been running to and fro around the earth wreaking havoc on God's people and on the earth bringing darkness amongst the, our world, now for the first time since he was thrown out of heaven, he is actually chained up and he's put in the prison where all those unbelievers were in Hades. And it says he's chained up for a thousand years, which is significant because during the thousand year reign of the saints with Christ, we talked about last week how there is this 
peaceful blanket over the earth. There is this sense of a void of Satan and of evil that as we're reigning with Christ for those thousand year period that is no longer a part of this world as we've known it since Satan was cast out of heaven. And so there's this beautiful time that we see. So Satan and all the unbelievers and all of his demons are now bound up in the pit, unable to affect the world. And the Antichrist and the false prophet However, for whatever reason that it takes place in this way, when, God, when Jesus returned and all of the unbelievers and Satan were put in the pit, it says that the Antichrist and the false prophet were actually cast into the lake of fire, which as we read, we can determine is a different place than Hades or the underworld of hell. The lake of fire is the final destination of departed spirits that died in rebellion or unbelief. It is the eternal place of torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth, fire and brimstone, where those who have rebelled against God are going to suffer in eternity for the rest of time. Their spirits are not just annihilated. There is an eternal condition for those unbelievers, just like there's an eternal condition for those of us who believe. So now the thousand year period that we've reigned with Christ is kind of coming to an end. And then we pick up in verse seven and see where this goes from here. Now the thousand years have expired or when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So there again, the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, the capital where, the, where we're reigning with Christ from during the thousand year period. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, not the saints, but those who were under the influence of Satan at the end of the thousand years when he was released. And then verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet already are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, first of all, at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released. He forms this force to try to create this one final stage or one final battle against God. And they're devoured with fire. It says they come up to the camp of the saints. So they, I guess, surround the city of Jerusalem. And then fire and brimstone rain down from heaven, much like in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it devours Satan and all of them who are rallying in this final stage. And, uh, and then it says that Satan at that point is then cast into the lake of fire where he joins the false prophet and the Antichrist. And going back a few weeks ago, I talked about this, but Satan, the Antichrist who does his bidding during the end times, and then the false prophet who's actually under the control of the Antichrist to do signs and wonders to make people believe in the Antichrist. These three are the first to enter in out of anyone else to the lake of fire, the final destination. I think this is incredibly interesting because many uh, theologians will refer to Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet as the false trinity. The false trinity. We know the trinity of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God in three persons. And Satan will do some of his most destructive work in the church, hear me on this, folks, by deceiving 
those who have a little bit of truth where he can distort truth and actually do more damage many times with that than he can with people who have no knowledge of the truth. Because then what happens is he aligns himself, he attempts to align himself closely with the things of God and with the teachings of God as if to deceive God's people so then he does harm inside the body of Christ which ultimately ripples out and flows out into the rest of the world. The Bible says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We know he himself was a fallen angel to begin with. And so the point in that that I want to make is to just really be aware of his tactics and of his schemes that you know we even when you get a little bit of the truth and you get a little bit of the word don't think that satan won't try to twist that and manipulate that on you i've seen so many people who have used scripture in false ways and in false interpretations and then base their truth on that and attempt to to teach and espouse that to those around them and it becomes very contaminating and very destructive in the lives of God's people. So we need to know Satan himself is the father of that and he's behind that. And so Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are now in the lake of fire, the first three entrants, the complete false trinity, awaiting the rest of all of the unbelievers to arrive there since the beginning of creation. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But I want to address this, first of all, because some of you may have been thinking this. I've certainly thought this. I'm not going to suggest I'm going to be able to uh, give you the full answer because I don't know that we can have that. But why in the world is Satan released? <laughs> I mean, God returns. Jesus returns, throws him in the pit. All of those in Armageddon are destroyed. The world is now void of Satan's presence. Like, what's the point in him being released after 1,000 years of being bound up. Additionally, it says that he goes and he brings people together on the earth for this battle. What's that all about? Where are these people, who are these people that he, Satan is rallying to him in this final stage, in this final battle uh, against God that we know ends fut in futility where God's fire rains down and destroys them all. So why he's released, to be honest, I really don't know. I'm not sure on that. Um, I've read a lot of theories. People suggest that it's, it's an opportunity for God to finally extinguish and rid the world of Satan or for there to be an opportunity for one last testing of people if their faith is true and genuine and real. But here's the interesting part of that is that so many are already gone to be with the Lord. So once we're in that glorified state, that's now we're not really subject to Satan's tempting so who are the people here's the here's the most popular theory and to me this is this is the only thing that really makes sense if it's not this then I, I don't know what it is but the theory is is that at the end of the seven-year tribulation we know that there are many who have been caught up in the air through what we talked about as a term the church uses called rapture to teach about the catching away that Paul speaks of in first Corinthians or first Thessalonians 4 so there's many who've been caught away in the air. There are all those Old Testament saints who've gone on who died in faith who are now with the Lord in heaven. And there are all the New Testament saints, those who've died since Christ came. So the church is united now in heaven. However, the Bible does speak about, through Revelation, a remnant of people on the earth who actually endure, meaning that they survive the tribulation. 
Now, there are many who are martyred and who die for their faith during the persecution of the Antichrist in the seven years. That absolutely will happen. And those spirits go to be with the Lord and become part of the church that reigns in the thousand years. But there are some the Bible speaks about that endure, that actually survive, that God protects as a remnant. Much of this actually speaks about the, the nation of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel that are protected during this time. Um, so the theory is that there are actual people who live and survive the tribulation and enter into the millennium age having not died the physical death yet. Are you with me? It's kind of deep stuff. But So then the idea would be that those people have children and begin to repopulate the earth. Now for a thousand year period of time, there's a lot of multiplication that can happen. Trust me, I've seen it in eight years, okay? So I know how that works, the power of multiplication. So the idea is, is that all of those who have survived the tribulation who enter into the thousand-year period, they are believers because their faith has secured them. Otherwise, they would have been destroyed in Armageddon. So they're true believers. They enter into the millennium and then they begin to have children and repopulate the earth as the earth repopulates as well after the destruction that has occurred uh, becomes fertile once again and, and growth and stuff like that. So it's possible that these millennium, uh, the people, the ones that enter the millennium and have children and then these children continue to have children. The theory is, is that when Satan is released and he comes to earth, that those who are, have not truly received Christ in that natural state on the earth in the millennium will be tempted by the devil and if their hearts don't truly belong to Christ, then he'll be able to draw them away. That's the, that's the idea. I, I just say to you, that that is the most sound theory of all theologians and of all teachings that I've studied and read around how this thousand year, at the end of the thousand year, this battle is even possible. Regardless of how that takes place, the key factor is, is that at the end of that, Satan is finally destroyed and he is tossed into the lake of fire and now he is sentenced to his eternal fate, the eternal place uh, of torment with the false prophet and the antichrist and now we have this setting up of this next event that goes uh in verse 11 so if you have your bible go there chapter 20 verse 11 it says then i saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away so now this is the first indication we're going to get to more of this in a minute but this is the first indication of actually the earth and heaven being destroyed and the new heaven and the new earth that God speaks about uh, being created is starting to happen right here so I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it whose face earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them and then I saw the dead small and great standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Now listen to this. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. 
and they were judged each according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So after the thousand years and Satan is destroyed and those he's rallied in this final battle are destroyed, he's in the lake of fire. All of the unbelievers since the beginning of creation who died in rebellion, whose spirits went to hell, Hades in the underworld, are there awaiting their final judgment and it's at this point when John says he sees a great white throne, Jesus sitting on the throne, and then death in Hades, it says deliver up their dead. They, they present the dead and there's this final day of reckoning or judgment now that's happening that we've read about in Scripture, prophesied in Scripture from ages and ages. Now it is the final time we refer to this as the great white throne judgment. So all of those unbelievers are before the judgment of, of Christ and recognizing that their name is not written in the book of life. So they're sentenced now to the eternal fate of condemnation. And then once that judgment is complete for all of those unbelievers, remember it says that they delivered up their dead. You remember we talked about the first and the second resurrection and the first and the second death. This would be the time of the second resurrection where the, the Hades delivers up its dead, those evil spirits that are now being judged. They're resurrected to the bodies that are prepared for the lake of fire and then they are sentenced to the second death which those of us who believe, who take part in the first resurrection, escape the second death, which the second death is the spiritual death. That is the eternal separation from the presence of God for all of eternity. Only the unbelievers will experience that. So there's this time of this great white throne judgment and then death in Hades, after the, all of the unbelievers are judged, it says they are thrown out into the lake of fire. So at this point now, all of those, you can take that off there now, all of those who are uh, the unbelievers who've been in hell now have been moved into, tossed, thrown into that final destination, which is now the lake of fire. So Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet are already there. And now all the unbelievers since the beginning of creation are now there joining them for all of eternity to experience that torment, which is the greatest part of the torment, would be the separation from God. There's some things that people have thought, like with the lake of fire, where is that? You know, is it in the earth? Uh, is it in outer space? Is it in just like this abyss, this black hole? I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of theories on that. Um, any of them, I suppose, are plausible. But the, the idea is that it is an actual place, whether it exists in the earth or whether it exists in space or whatever, that it's an actual place where people who have died in unbelief and in rebellion of Christ and his saving grace will spend eternity apart from him. And the reality of that causes us who believe to live differently with that knowledge, to live differently than we would if that were not an actual condition that awaits those who deny Christ. 
because we live in a way where God will use us to share his saving message and to, uh, to show and reflect Christ's character in and through us in a way that continues to draw more to him while we walk this earth and continues to populate the kingdom of heaven. And I'll just kind of end this segment by saying that, you know, there are a lot of teachings around the idea that hell is not an actual place, that it's a figurative thing, God would never make people suffer for all of eternity, that's just not the case. And I just have to differ on that view that based on the way the Bible reads from beginning to end and all these teachings as I've taught you in these numbers of weeks, that hell is a real place. It is an actual outcome. It is a place that eternal, uh, that spirits will spend eternity that die apart from Christ. And for me, what I see is that my place during the era we're in now, which is the church age, is not to sentence or condemn we see in the great white throne judgment we're reigning with christ but who's judging he is he's judging souls now believers we are called we say we can judge sin in the body we can look on things and say that's sinful we can judge things like that but we're not judging the eternal state of sinners or of people's spirits that god himself is the one on the throne doing that judging so we live during this church age where our mission is just as much the mission Christ had. He came to seek and to save the lost. He did not come to condemn, but that the world through him might be saved. That final act of condemning happens in this great white throne judgment and we have the opportunity now to bring the message of hope and of grace and of salvation. And that is our part to play, folks. And if we ever get outside of that, if we ever get in a place where we're condemning anyone, sentencing anyone to an eternal fate of hell, then, then we have erred greatly in our mission in what God has called us to do and how to present this thing. Is it a real place? Yes. Is it, a, is it an outcome that people will experience? Yes. But our place is to preach the good news, the hope of Christ, the realities of hell, but the goodness that Christ came to offer those who would believe. And that's the way that we must approach it. And so I want to show you just in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you could go there, verses 9 and 10, it says this, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So, while the unbelievers await this great white throne judgment and receive the judgment of condemnation, we also see in the scriptures that every soul will actually approach the judgment seat of Christ. Now, when we read it in these verses, it says everyone approaches the judgment seat, both good and bad. So what we draw from that is that believers will approach a judgment seat. The word in the Greek that's used is bima, which basically means like a place of passing through, an entry point, 
a way to receive what's due and what's owed. So we as believers are judged in a way where there are rewards and crowns and things that are presented to us. The Bible speaks of in many places. Uh, Jesus himself talked about a saint's reward, a servant's reward, and a prophet's reward. There are five different types of crowns throughout the Bible that we see that believers can be uh, awarded in heaven. Again, much a mystery, but a beautiful mystery nonetheless in how this awaits us. The point that I want to make is that there is the judgment seat that believers will approach, which is where the rewards and the crowns of how we've lived our life in faithfulness and obedience to Christ will be presented but the judgment seat at the great white throne is a different word that is used when it says judges those who are dead. It's the word krenos, which means to receive a sentencing of condemnation. So there are two separate things that are happening. Most likely, if you've been hanging with me through this, most likely the judgment of the bima judgment seat where believers are awarded their crowns and presented with rewards happens when the lord returns and we're all gathered together with him at the beginning of the thousand year period and receive our new spiritual bodies the bible is not entirely clear about the order of every little event how exactly it happens but we can draw at least the theory that that is likely when it takes place because that's when we enter into our glorified state was when Jesus returns and we receive those new spiritual bodies. So at that point would be the judgment of the believers where those rewards are presented to us because we know we've already been washed clean of sin. So we're not stepping in waiting to receive a sentencing for every little evil act we've done. We've been washed clean of that. It's been blotted out. It doesn't exist in the eyes of the Lord. So the only thing left to really judge or to present in that entryway is going to be the rewards and the crowns that God will present to those who have lived faithfully and have lived that kind of life. And that will mean something as we enter into heaven of significance. Um, so beyond that, it's something that awaits us that we are anticipating and that we are excited about um, so at that point now all of all of hell is in the lake of fire all the unbelievers are gone and then it transitions now into go to revelation we're going to pick up in chapter 21 where he says and i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Also there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So this is that transitioning moment into the eternal age. The millennium closes with Satan and Hades being judged, thrown into the lake of fire. And it says that the old heaven and the old earth pass away. And that the new heaven and the new earth come to be. And it says that the new city, Jerusalem, which speaks about the heavenly abode of God, it says it descends 
out of the air and comes down upon the newly created earth. So if you can picture like a chandelier suspended coming down and descending, it's like the city of heaven comes down and descends and rests upon the newly created earth and that this will be the eternal state for the rest of eternity. And I want to show you where it speaks about this in several places, the new heaven and the new earth. In the Old Testament, if you have uh, Psalms 102, put those verses up in verses 25 and 26. It says, as, as of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, you being God, of course, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak, you will change them and they will be changed. So the old earth and the old heaven, as it's been since creation, passes away and a new heaven and a new earth is then created. He describes it as like changing a garment, changing from the old and into the new. Isaiah in chapter 65 verse 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. So the beauty of the new heaven and the new earth and the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down is a beauty and a perfection like nothing that has ever been before that. And that establishes the eternal age. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses... 11 through 13 he's talking about the end of the current earth he says therefore since all of these things will be dissolved what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day uh, in which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the way that the old heaven and the old earth go away could be a couple of things. One, it says that the earth will be dissolved with fervent heat, that the elements will melt. So this raining of fire down on Satan when he rallies the battle at the end of the thousand years, it's possible that that fire coming from heaven and raining down to devour all of those is what ends up melting and destroying the earth to prepare the way for the new heaven and the new earth. Um, it's also, it says here, that it just passes away. It fled away. So it's also possible that it, even though there's been fire that has quenched the earth, we know that happens, that it just ceases to exist. It just kind of goes away and then the new heaven and the new earth come to pass. But the point is, is that it's the city now in which righteousness dwells. It says that God is the tabernacle and that he is with us for all of eternity, meaning that the presence of God is in a significance and in an intensity to which has been building from the very beginning to now is fully inhabiting all of heaven 
to the point that it says there's no moon, there's no need for a sun. It's the glory of God that illuminates all of heaven. The presence of God is so full and so thick that it's just everywhere. And we are in his presence in a way and a closeness and an intimacy like never before known. And this is the beauty of our eternal condition is to walk and dwell with God as been intended from all of time before when he created Adam and Eve to have that closeness. And so I want to spend the last number of minutes just describing to you a little bit about what it says in this new heaven because there's some miraculous things in here uh, that I believe will really just strengthen your faith and build your hope and expectation for what's to come. Verse 9, it says, chapter 21, verse 9, and then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the last seven plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, holy Jerusalem, descending again out of heaven, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So picture that, it's, it's jasper, but it's clear and pure, and the light of God is just transferring through everything because the city is this clear and precious stone that it's made out of. So the light and the glory of God just travels and transfers and refracts through everything. Verse 12, it says, and she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates, and their names were written on them which are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So let's pause right there for a second. So what we see is we see the square foundation that he's describing, and then these walls that are coming up off of the foundation that are a description of the New Jerusalem. And on these walls, it says that there are the names of the uh, 12 tribes of Israel written next to the gate on each of these walls. We don't, yeah. And, and then on the foundations, the names of the apostles are written. One day I was reading this and I was like, that's really interesting, Lord. Like the apostles are on the foundation, but the 12 tribes are on the walls because the 12 tribes of Israel came chronologically before the apostles did I just think that that's interesting and I felt like the Lord spoke to me and quickened in my spirit and said it's the foundation of the revelation that the apostles received about my son that is the foundation which secures everything the Old Testament saints died in faith believing for and it's the foundation to which all the church has entrance into heaven in the New Testament era as well and that's why the apostles' names are on the foundation and the tribes are actually on the walls. And then each one of the 12 gates that are in those walls, it says, is a most precious pearl. Imagine that, a giant pearl. And in every one of the gates is this one big pearl stone. And it says that the gates are always open. They're never shut. And I thought, I was reading about this, and you know, pearls are created from enormous pressure and intensity 
inside the shell of the oyster and, and the, the pearl is eventually created after years and years of time, but it's a lot of suffering and pressure and friction and endurance that has to happen to create that most precious pearl. So these gates being pearls that are wide open are a constant reminder of the suffering of Christ that he endured, the pressure that he experienced. And it's because of that that these gates remain open and that we can actually walk in. And there is an awareness and a reminder through all of eternity for those who are there that it's because of the suffering of the Son and what he endured for you and I that we are actually there in the holy city to begin with. Isn't that amazing? He goes on to say, uh, let's see, verse 14 says that the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles, verse 15, and he talked with me who had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. So they're getting ready to measure the city. Listen to this. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs was its length, its breadth, and its height. They are equal. And then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, among, according to the measure of a man, that is of an angel. And so he says, get into that in a minute about the walls. But so 1,200 cubits is about 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high. It is a giant, it's almost like a, a cube, right? It's a giant thing. And, uh, and so I was studying this and based on the enormous square footage of what that city would be, they estimate that if, uh, if you took the square footage and you divided it out where there were like everybody had a normal like one one size room that they were occupying that there could have been like 100 billion billions of people that could fit in this type of square space could be so that's it's a quintillion it's 18 zeros now they estimate that there have actually been since the beginning of creation how they figure this i don't know 100 billion people who have lived. So, here's the point. <laughs> a quintillion could fit in there. There's only at best 100 billion that have walked the earth since the beginning of creation, of which we know not everyone will enter into heaven so the city is enormous. It was big enough for every soul who's ever been alive, even though not all will enter into it. Let me remind you in 2 Peter chapter 3 where it says, The will of God is that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. God created all of his children to be with him and to spend eternity with him. The city of heaven, if you had 100 billion people, it would be like 2 point something million square feet for every single one of those people based on those dimensions. I like, that's a pretty big mansion. Remember, he goes to prepare a mansion for us in John 14, and when he returns, he'll receive us to himself. This is the place where the mansion awaits. This is the place where he's prepared for us to go. The city of heaven is enormous, 
And it's big enough to where it could have inhabited all of the people who have ever lived, which is the nature of God, not that any would experience eternity apart from him, even though some will because they reject the message of his son. That is his nature, and that ought to be our nature. No one is too far to reach. No one is beyond saving as long as they have breath in their lungs. The saving grace of Christ can turn anyone around from dead to life in a moment when they receive that message, even if it's in their final days. Hallelujah. It's the heart of God that all would be there, even though that won't. Let it be our heart too. Lastly, he says, the construction of its walls were like jasper. The city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. And then he goes on to say all the different stones that are in the foundations. So picture this. The city is clear. The glory of God is its light. It is transferring through everything. There's these precious jewels that are on the foundation, I imagine that there's like this unbelievable refraction of light and gemstones that are just creating this radiance of color and light in the heavenly city where there will never be darkness and that we all walk in and experience and that will be the glory of God that we are constantly in. And so we see that it's a, a square city and that it is an overlaid with gold, a pure gold. And I want to show you something that will absolutely blow you away. Remember, this is heavenly Jerusalem that has descended out of the air where the heavenly abode of God was, the city of God, coming down onto the new heaven and new earth. It's a square cube and it's overlaid with gold. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 6, God gave Solomon instructions on how to build the temple that he was to build and how to construct the holy of holies which was inside this temple which was the place where the ark of the covenant would be which represented the full presence and glory of God and this description of the holy of holies I want to read to you And I want you to now draw the comparison to the city of New Jerusalem that we just read about. Chapter 6, 1 Kings, verse... uh, 19. And he prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple to set the ark of the covenant of the Lord. He, Solomon, is the one that prepared it by the Lord's instructions. Verse 20. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. It was overlaid with pure gold. Is that unbelievable? See, the first was the imperfect, but it was the, it was the picture of what was yet to come that would be the perfect. And the inner sanctuary in the Holy of Holies where the presence of God would dwell... It was 20 cubits wide, 20 long, and 20 high. It was a perfect cube. And it was overlaid with gold. The city of New Jerusalem is square and it's pure gold as crystal and as clear. It's overlaid with gold. There's remarkable consistency 
between the place where the presence of God would dwell when there were limitations for man to enter that presence and experience it and the consistencies of the Holy of Holies is very similar in a, obviously a downscale smaller version to the city of New Jerusalem as we see it described in Revelation chapter 21, a cube overlaid with gold, a pure city. And the most remarkable thing perhaps of all is that the very first temple that Solomon built was built on the top of Mount Zion where David had purchased a piece of property and gave it to his son and that is where he built the temple right on the hill in Jerusalem. And when the Lord returns, remember what we said in, in these series before? He will, his, this says that the clouds will rip open and his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives Here's the Mount of Olives. Here's Mount Zion. The Kidron Valley is separating the two. He'll stand on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem where the original temple that Solomon built in comparative measurements to the city of heaven and the new Jerusalem will then descend and set on the new heaven and the new earth in exactly the spot where the original temple was constructed. That blows my mind. It's fascinating stuff. It certainly, for the believer, gives us an expectancy and anticipation of great hope to look to what is yet ahead and what awaits us. The greatest part of our plan is always yet to come. But it also, to me, describes, folks, the impeccable perfection and inerrancy, meaning no errors, of Scripture throughout all of the ages as it is the inspired word of God. Remarkably precise and fulfilled in every last word. Those which have already been and those that are yet to come. And what that does for me is that causes me to read this book and know that every word in here is God's life and it's his truth and I can put my faith in every bit of it. It has the answers to the matters of life, both of this and of that that is yet to come. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's, uh, I'm gonna have Steve and the team come back up as we close things out here today, but the last thing it speaks about in chapter 22. It speaks about a river of life that is flowing out from under the throne of God. And it speaks about a tree of life that's yielding precious fruit all year long. And it says, There's no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb himself shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. So again, looking at consistency, looking back to the Garden of Eden, there was a river that flowed out of the Garden of Eden. And, and it, it said that it nourished all the land. There was a tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden. And it was originally intended to provide nourishment for Adam and Eve so that they would live forever. The original plan was that they would live forever with God. It says they walked with him in the cool of the day, the presence of Lord among them and with them. There was no sin and no curse prior to Satan's deception. So this picture in the garden 
is a very accurate comparison to what we see in the final state when the new Jerusalem and the new earth and heaven are made. There is a river that proceeds from the throne of God. There is the tree of life providing nourishment for all who are in eternity. There is no sin and no curse that ever enters into the holy city. And we are in the fullness of the presence of God for all of eternity, living forever with him as he originally intended. And it says that they will see his face. Up until this point in the Bible, there has never been a point where it spoke of where men were able to look upon the face of God. In fact, when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, he said, I want to see your glory, God. And the Lord said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pass by you, but I'm going to put you down in the cleft of a rock and I'm going I'm to leave you down there covered. When I pass by, you'll only be able to see a part of my back as I pass by. And he saw, he gazed upon a, if you can picture this, a, a piece of the glory of God, not the fullness of that, because it said if he would have saw his face that he would have died in that natural state. But then when we get to heaven in chapter 22, verse 4, it says that we will see his face. We will see him in fullness as he is in completion and perfection. And we will gaze upon that and look upon that with awe, with adoration, with wonder and splendor, and with nothing left to do but worship the King of Kings, the Lamb of God, the Lord of Lords for all of eternity. And it will be perfection. And I'll suggest to you that when we are there, there none of us would ever want to come back. You know, we, we see people that leave this earth and we lose them and we grieve that. It's appropriate. We've lost them here, but not forever. And I fully believe that when those people are gone and they get to be with God on the other side, if they had a chance to come back, they wouldn't do it. It's just too good. And time doesn't exist there, folks. We live in time. So we think, oh, they're gone and I might not be there for 30 years or 50 years or 80 years. But in heaven, there's no time. I picture it like when they get there, they're just enjoying heaven and then 50, 60 years later we get there like, oh, there you are. You were right behind me, weren't you? There's no sense of this gap or of this loss. We've lost nothing when we arrive there. We've only gained everything. And there's nothing to be fearful of that. There's nothing that's lost as we pass through into the eternal place. God has created us to live and spend eternity there. That is the final destination for which we were created for. And we can trust our creator that he knows what is good and what is right for us. Put your faith in him today. Amen.